Welcome to Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. Tim Priest with Pete Sampson and Tim O'Malley. Not a ton happening these days around Notre Dame football, but we'll address a few of those topics. But Pete, you just had an opportunity uh, on Tuesday to sit down with Jack Swarbrick for about an hour. Why don't you give us an update on some of the topics you discussed? Yeah, there, I mean, there was a bunch of things I wanted to get into. One of them was scheduling, and we talked about you know the Shamrock series and how that fit into Notre Dame attempting to make the college football playoff. Uh, we talked about sort of the college football playoff rankings and how that sort of is working or not working with uh, the 13th game maybe being a factor. We talked about facilities a little bit. Uh, and then Brian Kelly as well. But, I mean, one one of the questions that I think a lot of people have wanted to ask Sorbrick since the announcement of, of moving the Syracuse game to Yankee Stadium in November was just, why? Why Why do that? And, I mean, he admitted that, look, look, this is not a move that necessarily is 100% uh, good for football. And while he was, I think, not overly defensive about, you know, it, for a home game, you're going to the hotel mid-afternoon, you're leaving mid-afternoon, a short flight to New York, so on and so forth. Um, I do think that he's sensitive to the fact that this is not probably the ideal way to have November unfold the year after November unfolded with Miami wearing down uh, with Wake Forest there as well, Navy, uh, and obviously the loss at Stanford. So it's, um, I think with scheduling, and this is the point he tried to make, was just like, I don't I don't think there's ever a perfect schedule. Um, and he even brought up the, the Georgia series. Like, did he want to play Georgia away next year? No, but... If you have to do that to get Georgia at home in 2017, is that worth it? He felt like it was, and on that point, I, I would agree with him. Yeah, you know, I hear where he's coming from, and if I were in his position, I would say the same thing about, you know, travel and playing the Yankee Stadium and Syracuse. And I, I just don't I, – I mean, I don't buy it. I, I get it. I, I get that you have, have many constituencies that you have to serve when – when you're the athletics director at Notre Dame, and you guys have heard me say this a thousand times, but he's also the vice president, and that it, that it, in essence, in itself, puts him in a situation where he has to serve the university first over football. It's still travel. It's still late November. It's still going into the cold and getting home later at night. What's kickoff? Two thirty. Yeah, mid afternoon kickoff. Which I think Pete, you said that you know had it been had. NBC demanded a night kickoff, then it, 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 it probably or could have nixed that. But, you know, a lot, it, it all, look, it, it all depends upon, first of all, what Notre Dame does in Northwestern a couple of weeks prior to that, if they can go there and win on the road. But it, how it's all going to be perceived will come down to just how much success they have in November and how much success they have away from home. He knows it makes it a little worse. There's no, there's no denying it makes it a little worse, but I, that's, it's, it's not all about football, right? Yeah. That's what it comes down to. It's just not all about the football team. And I think most logical listeners understand that nowadays. You don't have to agree with it. I don't agree with it. I think you could have avoided it maybe. Found a way to... I guess there's many ways to say what game can you turn into the Shamrock Series game. And idea in a perfect world, as you said, there is no perfect world. You turn the Vanderbilt game into the Shamrock Series, right? Which I think ultimately was what they wanted to do. That would have been perfect. Um, early. In the end, no effect on the schedule if you do that. In my minimal, minimal <coughs> effect on the schedule if you do that. Yeah, unless you played it in Rome. But <laughs> I mean, look, the most disruptive neutral site game that they have played was Navy in Ireland, and they went twelve and zero that regular season. Now they came back and almost lost to Purdue the very next week. But um, so much of this has to do with looking back on it through the prism of well, how good was Notre Dame actually? If Notre Dame is really good. Playing in Yankee Stadium is not going to make a difference. But I think we've seen too many Notre Dame teams over the last five years that have only been pretty good, and the little things do make a difference, and this this could be one of those little things. Yeah, you know, 2012, we've talked about this many times. I mean, the caliber of defense and defensive players and stars that they had on that side of the football, um, that's that's what allows you to, to compensate for things like that. But, you know, I get it, and, and that's Notre Dame, that's politics, that's what every – head coach is going to have to deal with, especially as long as Jack Swarbrick is vice president slash director of athletics. That's, that's just the way it is. And, and the, the, you know, the, the Brian Kelly has to accept it because he's complained about it before and it, nothing changes with regard to that. 
and the next guy that comes in and replaces him is going to have to deal with it. You know, another topic we talked about was sort of the indoor facility because I, I just thought the way that Notre Dame approached that was was odd in the sense that it was released on a Friday afternoon, which usually is bad news. That's that's called the Friday afternoon news dump for a reason in our industry. It's because if you have bad news you want people not to pay attention to, put it out on a Friday afternoon. The indoor facility should have been something that Notre Dame celebrated. Um so I, I mind the what the actual facility is a little bit more with Swarbrick, and I, I guess I was surprised to find out that it li- it literally is just a field. Um, there's not space for nutrition in there. There's not space for recovery. That's not to say those things won't come down the road built on the back of the Goog or even built over the Goog. There's the construction model for the new facility is engineered so an addition can be put on top of it, literally on top of it linking the Goog to the facility with some square footage um, that basically will run over the road. I mean, could they close off that road? Maybe, um, you know, just sort of fill in that entire space. That's that's reasonable so as the, well. Excuse me, Tim. But the, the, so they're still going to have to dress in the Goog, go out into the winter of November, cross the street. To go to their into indoor that, facility. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, is will there be a another locker room over there? Maybe. Um but there's there's going to be very little um, in terms of I think beyond the field an observation deck uh, and a video board in Just there bare, bare bones football field yeah no I mean what there will be a lot more height to it um, Sorbrick laughed that basically. Just when we get enough space to practice kickoffs inside, they're doing away with the kickoff. Um, <laughs> so it uh, there there will be some advantages there. Where in the past, I mean, they they really could not work on a lot of special team stuff inside. Now they'll actually be able to do that. Also, it will not feel like they're practicing in a warehouse from 1972. Yeah, there'll this, be actually some natural light. This is phase one, basically. Of we yeah. have to get out of the Loftus Center Mayo Field practice field because it's ridiculous that. Notre Dame football still practices in there. With all the advancements they've had on this campus, it was built in 93, the field. It was new to Ron yeah. Paulus and those. I mean, yeah. this is, think about that. That is no other program of any anywhere near this caliber has something like that. We Every time we do a practice report, we use the word dank or dark. <laughs> and yeah. We keep seeing it that way. I'm sure it's not. The, it's just not ideal for practicing football. And I, and I realize, I mean, this is this is football driven of course but you do have i mean notre dame especially under jack swarbrick and notre dame athletics across the board have grown and so you can't you can't have teams practicing at 5 30 in the morning or 10 30 at night as well and so this at least loosens things up a little bit for everybody else yeah and there are i mean there are ncaa rule changes that prevent those practice times yeah. from happening now uh in a way that was not the case five years ago or ten years ago so that that was fairly interesting we did sort of talk about the, the football program at large um i i'm curious what you guys think of this theory i i thought that last year's coaching staff was arguably the most cohesive that brian kelly has had in nine years here and Swarbrick agreed with that. He also felt like this year's staff will build on that and could be better in terms of people pulling in the same direction. Um, you know, now is it as talented as the staff as last year? Probably not, but he was very high on Jeff Quinn and Clark Lee. We didn't really talk specifically about Terry Joseph, but he felt like the staff uh, overall and he. He spoke a lot about Clark Lee. He was very impressed with him as a teacher. Um, he, he just felt very optimistic that this staff can build on where last staff, last year's staff sort of took the program. It's interesting you mentioned Jeff Quinn because that's that's a de facto leadership position. It's not one of Brian Kelly's technical leadership positions, yeah. but knowing how much he trusts Quinn and just the offensive line as being, it's all running through that. Like Chip Long has to have a relationship with Jeff Quinn, who has a relationship with Brian Kelly all the way across where Joseph will just prove himself in the end result of how much better were the safeties did they make plays to help right. him win games. It can't be as talented of a staff because they lost who, just because it's like he's gone he, doesn't like, mean he wasn't the best defensive coordinator they could have possibly brought in right. last year. It would be like saying the, the offensive line is better this year than last year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody would say that because your defensive coordinator is now making $2 million a year, basically, and your offensive line yeah. coach is coaching the NFL. And your defensive coordinator could have been 
coaching his pupil who's your new defensive coordinator. It wasn't right. like you're losing Clark Lee out of the field. Yeah, I mean, you know, Elko set the path. And, and I, you know, speaking of Clark Lee, I mean, I don't know anybody that's had any contact with him from fellow coaches to players to media, oh, whoever. He's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, how but can he still would have been there. Yeah, I mean, how can you not be impressed with what he's done? So, I mean, and none of that means anything until he's calling defenses in a Michigan game with the game on the line. I get that. But um, I think. You know, just at this stage, from the outside looking at this stage of the process, I think they're pretty fortunate that they were able to follow Elko with him. Now, the Harry Heastand, I mean, when you lose Elko and Heastand, uh, and, and Pete, you make a good point about the cohesion, and I, mean, I don't know how much cohesion you have if Elko leaves a couple of days after, you know, one of your biggest wins in, in, That's uh, valid. in yeah. a quarter of a century. But, um, <laughs> made that a but, lot worse. But, no, I mean, the, the point's still well taken because the players responded to him and the coaching staff responded to, to Elko. And he's a he's a quality defensive coach. I know a lot of people, like when he left and went to Texas A&M, there's people trying to say, oh, he didn't do that good of a job. Okay. I mean, you, you know. The he didn't he, do well is handle his departure. Other than that, he yeah, did a good he did, job. He didn't, do, he didn't do that uh, very well. Although I wrote a story the other day, I think one area where – this defense will improve. Is it? You know, they gave up four yards of carry last year. I know that's just a number over the course of thirteen games, but I would expect that number to drop. I think they're going to. You know, if you look at and you look at November, there's a. You know, not not even just Navy, but uh, Wake Forest, huge rushing game. I, I think those numbers will uh, it, this year will improve under Clark Lee, mainly because you know your front seven is basically coming back intact, and I think that duo in the middle of Coney and, and Tranquil is going to be outstanding. You want to talk a little bit about Ball State? Um, we're sort of going to incrementally get through the schedule this summer. Um, yeah, we'll du- we'll double up on on some yeah. opponents, but and I know you know it's not exactly bated breath waiting yeah. to, to hear about Ball State. Well, we almost led with Ball we State. almost yes. led with yeah, yeah, yeah. Priester, and, summarize and, Ball State in sixty <laughs> seconds or less. Go. <laughs> you know they were two and ten last year. They were terrible um, in the last. Let's check this out. In the last nine games, they gave up 387 points. They gave up they gave up 43 points per game in the last nine and scored 12.7. Now, in fairness to them, their quarterback was hurt, Riley Neal. He'll be back. Uh, their running back, who rushed for over 1,300 yards, James Gilbert, also was injured. He'll be back. So they should be a better version. They only lost one, like, real significant p- player, and that was defensive end Anthony Winbush with an N, and he was a free agent pick of, of Atlanta. But – They've got issues. Um, their coach is on the hot seat. Their program is not where it was yeah, just a, you know just a few years ago. Twelve and one. How many years ago? It's probably Six, more three. than we yeah, true. think off the top of our yeah. head. But well, was when Brady Brady Hoke was a rising star yeah. in the yeah, coaching I guess it was about nine years. That's ago. how long yeah, ago right, it was. Right, right. But not a real good team. Uh, an excellent team to play the week. Whether it's before Michigan or, yeah, after, or after, right? Yeah. In this instance, of course, it's after. You know, it's uh, this will be a really fun game for Notre Dame fans if they beat Michigan because it's going to be the best tailgate lot of the year with <laughs> everyone from Ball State coming up for this game. And if there's high-flying happiness from beating Michigan, this is going to be a little celebration, fun time for Notre Dame with one of the worst teams that has come in here. Who's the worst team you've covered to come in here? Do you think UMass? Uh UMass would be really high on that list. Um, they only scored twenty-seven on Van Gorder's defense too. But yeah, they were they were about that was a bad that was a bad, was a bad team. team. Despite being a they just moved Mac up levels. contending yeah. UMass according to Brian Kelly. Um, I don't know. There there have been some bad like that Western Michigan team had a couple pieces. They had a pro quarterback. They had a pretty good. Yeah. It was Alex, Alex Carter. Carter yeah. um, but I think UMass would probably be the worst team that I've I've seen. I mean, in in your in your yeah, era, covering so them, yeah, I, I can cover I, Rutgers and I've got six. I've got SMU coming off probation, oh, no, baby, no, no, no. <laughs> running out of bounds to keep the score down. Yeah. Yeah. Rusty, Rusty Setzer, yeah. Um, you know, if you've been on Irish Illustrated a bunch of summer, you've seen that we're doing the Irish Illustrated A to Z series again. Um, I think we have a lot of fun doing those, and it's to me, there's the most interesting parts to me about those series are looking back at who was ranked where in recruiting. And then also doing player comparisons. And we're, I think we, Micah Drew Treadway, I think was yesterday or today. So we're just starting into the D's of the player comparisons you guys have done or the recruiting rankings. What has been sort of the most like, wait a minute, is that right? I need to actually double check this. Or, oh, 
I haven't thought about this player in the last 20 years, and now this player on the current team reminds me of this guy. I want to interrupt you because my favorite part also is, you know, looking back at recruiting and especially player comparison. I love that, going back for Notre Dame history. I am currently working on a kickoff specialist, Jonathan Dorer, who, when you rank kickoff specialists, has to be last, and it's really hard to find a player comparison for a two-year kickoff specialist before taking over field goal duties. So that's my current challenge going on at this point for they can be when when Ronnie Rodimer is compared twice within, and that's one thing that we maybe we should do a better job of checking to see who what the other guy is comparing him to. But um, you're blowing my cover. That's Micah Jones. That's not for another. Few <laughs> oh, weeks. oh yeah. no! Now, no one's going to no, read my okay. Micah Jones A to Z. All right. Well, I had comparison. I had the the Freddie Canteen comparison there before the the breaking news on Freddie. You could have had a three-day weekend, Tim. I could have. I could have, but it um, but it didn't happen. But, um, you know, Ronnie Rodimer was was injury-plagued uh, even beyond Notre Dame when he left Notre Dame. Uh, so that's a comparison. I had Ian Book with Matt Lavecchio. I, I like that, that one. Was, yeah. I thought that was a, a pretty good comparison. Is a stereotype to compare Aaron Banks to uh, uh, Stewart? I mean, is he a guard? Is he a tackle? Yeah. I think he even... Yeah, I mean, you know, just size, just sheer size, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. They're, yeah, both early in rows, just sheer size. Um, I know those are those are fun. They can be a, they can be a challenge. I liked comparing the brash <clears throat> Noah Boykin with Robert Blanton. That was a good one. <laughs> the ones for me that are intriguing are I, Kevin Austin. Everybody, I think, that looked at his film thought, "Wow, he really does remind me when he runs of Michael Floyd." But you can't really compare Kevin Austin to Michael Floyd at this. Point in their incoming careers, Michael Flo is the third-ranked yeah. wide receiver, with Julio Jones being number one. That was quite a class. It's funny to look at the wide receiver rankings, though, because Austin, I believe, is eighty-two. I should have pulled that up. I think Austin was 80, is eighty-two in this class composite, just ahead of Deion Walker at ninety in his class, and a little bit behind Justin Brent at sixty-four. Yeah. It's a strange world the wide receivers occupy in the recruiting rankings because if you just look down at all their, you never get. The bad receiver, the low, low-ranked receiver, become a great player. But, boy, are there a lot of great players that don't. In other words, they're not missing on both ends. You you need to be ranked somewhere. Like Will Fuller is in, you know, 190. That's He's a guy that could become a player. And, and Chase Claypool and stuff like <clears> that. Right. You, you rarely get the lowly-rated wide receiver like you do at other positions come up and be a star. You know, it's Will Fuller is interesting because on ESPN, he was the worst guy in the class. Um, That's a terrible which is hard to about. believe. Um, you know, a c- couple of comparisons that I had for guys <clears throat> that I wrote. I I went I went there with Tavon Coney because um, Manti Teo is not that far off through three no, years. That's, I, I mean, I right. think that's, that's when they're not rookies, you get to do their actual yeah. careers. Uh, and then Avery Davis, I struggled with this one because you know, it's like the quarterback who moves positions. But to me, in terms of athletically, it's a little bit. It's more like. Abe Elam, where he was a quarterback for a couple days, and then was a was a big time athlete. Um, obviously, his career uh, didn't work out at Notre Dame, but you know, I, I just think there's some suddenness to his game. Whereas I think, a, and it, it, it's not, I couldn't do Holiday or Arnaz Battle because they actually played quarterback right. at Notre Dame. I had to find somebody who moved before he actually got on the field at that position. But you know, I think the I think. I'm not sure which one you guys had, Jason Adam Malola, but Sheldon Day, I think is a really good one yeah, there. Um, and I think that that's one that I think even on signing day, Mike Elston uh, went went that far with him too. So it's, you know, you sort of, <clears throat> it gives you a different vibe to me at least of okay, how much talent does Notre Dame have when you're coming away thinking like, oh, this guy kind of reminds me of Joe Brockington or Devin Butler. Yeah. Um, that's a little different than Manti Teo. Did you have Justin? I had Adamalola? no, uh, but I I had. I, I went Jonathan Bonner with okay. Justin Adamalola because tweener. Yeah, yeah. Is he in? Is, is he going to grow inside? Yeah. Not really sure. I think Bonner's even more of a tweener than than he is. But well, I jumped ahead with Chase Claypool. He was a difficult one to find, so I tried to project a, a junior year rise from a guy that has about 400 career receiving yards and about 30 career catches. I think it made a couple people happy, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to hit this level, but in terms of a junior year rise, I had Jeff Samarza for Chase. I thought that was uh, a good one. Yeah. Now, he won't have those stats because they're named no, Brady and Quinn nobody's, and they're going to run the See, the, the thing with this, you, there's got to be a lot of leeway in order to find yeah. some, you know, because, I mean, everybody's different. So you, you've, 
you've got to have a lot of rope to be able to comp- to compare. And you're not saying he's going to have some 15 touchdowns yeah, and 1,200 right. yards, but I think he's going to have a length, junior year leap. Length, yeah. athleticism, looks like too. ability. Yes. Yeah, I mean, th- not facially. There, I mean, he, yeah, he looks like a, him when he plays right. football. There's a lot. There's a lot of comparisons there. Yeah. So those will continue on through. I think almost. Well into up July, to, no, it's into up to August, up to the yeah. day before training camp. If it starts on wrap time, wrap up with Justin yeah. Yoon. So you can check all that out on irishillustrated.com. So I think that's it for segment one. We've got a bunch of questions from Twitters and our readers next. Segment two of Irish Illustrated Insider burning up the boards. We have a question from Patrick in Florida. One, I prefer Ian Book over. Wimbush, is there any chance for true competition in camp, or will Wimbush be given every opportunity to be the starter, regardless of the development production of either quarterback? I think for Michigan, he has he will they've chosen their starting quarterback, barring an off-field incident, which won't happen, or just the worst camp in the history of camps, which also won't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's with Wimbush, it it would have to be to me at least a Dane Chris South Florida type of dynamic. That's that's it's still in the Michigan game. Yeah, but yeah. still in the Michigan game where that it would have to be performance-related in a game. I don't think there's – I don't know what would have to happen in practice in August for them to make a change, but I, but I don't even think that it's it's possible to occur that Wimbush yeah, would be that bad. Wimbush is not going to perform that poorly in practice. I mean, he's proven that he can win the job in practice, right. so that won't happen. So we're the three of us are in agreement on that, but I, I will throw this out. I and I think this is something that was said in a previous podcast. The difference this year is, I don't think that they'll wait and allow Wimbush to lose a game. No, you know, kind of what Pete right? said too. They right. won't. They certainly won't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. M- m- you know, they'll go with Book because they know Book can lead them to victory. He's done it as a starter. He's done it in relief, and so that to me, that's the that's the biggest difference. Wimbush isn't going to lose a job in the preseason, but he can lose the job in the middle of a game. I don't know that that he necessarily... He lost at an LSU, and Yeah, he, I don't know it would necessarily carry over the next week. He might have lost... I mean, he lost it basically when it was a little too late in Miami. He lost the job in the game, but Book came in and threw an interception touchdown. Right. That ruined the whole, right, right, let's right. keep him in there situation. Right. So he lost it twice last year in the middle of a game. Yeah. And you would not have taken him out of that Georgia game because Book would have just gotten murdered too. There was no reason to take we had Brandon Wimbush out. Of yeah, the well, game. the Miami in the Miami game, the Miami game was so extreme that you just had right. to make a change with the quarterbacks. But and we it, both expect him, or we all expect him to start. And but I, yeah, I agree with you, Pete and Tim. That bad first half, it's ten nothing to Michigan, and he has a really ineffective first half. I wouldn't be surprised to see Ian Book come out. Yeah, I guess maybe it would be, uh, you know, if you did the Michigan parallel, Everett Golson against Michigan in 2012. I mean, it's like. You know, Notre Dame won the game, but it took a lot of mucking around mm-hmm. for that to happen. And you, you basically needed a quarterback to to do no harm, opposed to a guy to go out and make plays. I don't think Notre Dame's going to be in that position against Michigan this year, but um, that's something would just have to happen in game. And I think we've got a sort of follow up from Trevor Johnson, um, Trev alive about. I think the athletic advantage Wimbush has over Book is overblown because Book is more decisive and makes better reads on zone. Slash read option plays. Agree or disagree? I disagree, uh, and I want to give a parallel to basketball. Brandon Wimbush's escape from the pocket after a play breaks down, or just a keeper, when he turns into a 50-yard runner or a touchdown, is what made that offense last year so unstoppable for a long part of the season. It's like in a basketball game where you can have the five most efficient players playing for Mike Bray, and then all of a sudden you're playing Duke, and there's three future pros like Jason Tatum just get the ball and dunk once in a while. You don't have to work for absolutely everything when you have that athletic advantage. And I think teams that have a guy that is a difference maker, it allows for easy touchdowns that never would have happened. It's yeah. like allows for easy dunks that never would happen. I agree with your point there. I agree with the question from the standpoint, like from, from read option, zone option. Book is great. He's, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with the premise. He's decisive and explosive out of that, and that aspect is really, really impressive. I think the biggest difference, it, tying in with what you're saying about turning a real negative into a 45-yard play, I, Ian Book cannot avoid a pass rush the, the way Wimbush can. Just not, irregardless of, you know, turning into a 45-yard run, just absolutely, just escaping the pass rush. Book just doesn't have that kind of explosiveness moving laterally or having to escape, you know, with a step backward. 
I agree. I mean, the Wake there's a there's a play against Wake Forest. Uh, it was about midfield that turned into I think a 50 yard Wimbush touchdown run where spread the entire field out. Wimbush is I think ISOed. You know, there's it's an empty backfield and he just takes a step back and boom he goes and you can see the look on Wake Forest's uh, defensive coordinator's face when he's talking to um, the head coach there and it's just like what do you want me to do? I mean, there's, there's it's not a defensible play. Uh, there's nothing Ian Book does that's not defensible. And he's uh, a running back in the red zone, Wimbush. Yeah. He's, a, he's that, another that, weapon that you can cover the whole team that way. And to, and to quote a person in the, within the Goog, Wimbush is, our, is Notre Dame's best running back. He is now, certainly with Josh Adams. <laughs> he, is, he is their best running back. And, and you're not going months. to – yeah, I mean, you're not – you're not going to take that kind of athlete off the field. Speaking of running backs, uh, another Twitter question from Mr. Yips4, last podcast, podcast. It was mentioned that the Indy staff was kicking the tires on C.J. Holmes and Dion McIntosh. McIntosh could return, but face a four-game suspension. Any update? Pete, you have an uh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Tires the, have been kicked. Yeah, no, the McIntosh thing, well, you know more about it here. Yeah, recently. I mean, we got some in- info earlier in the offseason that Notre Dame was really evaluating – McIntosh coming back. Well, that is all. That's not happening now. Um, he won't be returning. C.J. Holmes. There was not. I don't think there's really an update to that either. Um, neither of them are expected back, and they'll they'll roll with Dexter Williams, Tony Jones, Jafar Armstrong, Demir Smith, somewhat Avery Davis, and Sebo Flemister if he shows up. Um, that's just how it's going to have to be. It's you're. They're right at. The 86 man number, uh, one to go to get to 85 by the time the season starts. I don't think that they really want to push that too far north anyway. And look, if you if you can't run an offense with what six five and a half scholarship running backs, I don't. That's yeah. that's a pretty big number for that position. I don't think you need to be at seven and a half. There is optimism as to what Flemister is going to be able to bring to them. No, no. He's he, my hasn't guy. Been, he he hasn't he hasn't been on field, and so that optimism is easy to have. But there is optimism toward that. And if I would say, if Notre Dame had to choose between which of the two running backs that they could have back, whether it be McIntosh or Holmes, it would be McIntosh. And I wouldn't bring back a dismissed player that was dismissed for cause. And then to further that, I especially wouldn't bring back that caliber of a dismissed player that was dismissed for cause. It's a different question if it's Michael Floyd. I'm not going to stand on a high horse and say this is how college football should be run. I, but you know what? Everybody should be treated differently. He was dismissed for cause. He's not good enough to bring back. I wrote about it on Monday, and I believe that an average player, there's, he was not suspended with let's see if you can go straight. Yeah, right. He was dismissed for doing something incredibly stupid. Yeah, they, the Brian Kelly definitely cut a much harder line with those guys in December than, than, I, than I expected. Oh, yeah, I sure. did not think he'd be cut from the team, dismissed from the, from the football team, but... He has been. So why would you revisit that? You're not, you're not bringing back a 1500 yard rusher that might make a difference in your livelihood, and that the team is going to rally around because you brought back their <laughs> right. favorite player. This just it's that players are looked at differently. Actually, yeah, I totally agree. We had sort of this is a sidebar question to that question from uh, Runway Minister. Looking back through the years at. Running back, it seems it has been a difficult area all around for Kelly and company in terms of recruiting, eligibility, avoiding trouble, developing, etc. Do you guys have any opinions on this subject? What is the staff doing to improve this issue? I mean, it's, I, I can't get over what has happened to the running back's room in the last few years at Notre Dame. We were also making a joke. I was looking just for a Brandon Wimbush stat. This is a tangent. I think he's going to lead the team in rushing touchdowns again. If he plays the whole year, he will. No other quarterback has done that at Notre Dame consecutive years, and you think that's that I'm going back like the 40s. I haven't been able to verify in the 40s. You think that seems crazy until you realize Notre Dame always has good running backs, and that is an indictment of Notre Dame's running backs. Yeah, it really is. You know, P, you can talk about it. I mean, yeah, there, there's those are the trouble like, in the room is remarkable. Yeah, I well, I want to get into yeah. I, it's when you think about Autry Denson, the person, the coach, right. the way he communicates with them, and the running backs can't stay out of trouble it's it's well it's frustrating it's it's perplexing but it's it's extremely frustrating and it's got to be so frustrating for Denson I mean let's I know that it's who you're blaming in these situations but Autry Denson certainly isn't preaching these things the way he lives his life 
it is a, it's remarkable. Other than being handed a tailor-made human being in Josh Adams, they've had problems in this running back room. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, look, was Sierra Wood easy to coach? Probably not. Um, you know, like, was you don't probably Ricky Waters one. and uh, Tony Brooks easy yeah. to coach? Oh, probably not. Um, so I think running backs who are a challenge, Julius Jones had his issues here, suspended for a year. This is not... The irony, unprecedented. the irony is Autry Denson was easy to coach. Yes. <laughs> it's just like if it was going to happen to a position coach, it would not happen to Autry Denson. Um, I I don't really have a good answer yeah. for, for this question. Um, it's a great question. That's why I don't really... I don't get why Notre Dame doesn't, hasn't been hitting at a higher level in recruiting uh, at running back. Because, again, who would you want to represent Notre Dame on the recruiting trail better or who would do it better than Autry Denson? Very few people, I think. Um but it just is not clicked for him there. Yeah, and do, I mean, do, do great running backs look to see, okay, Notre Dame turns out first-round draft choices on the offensive line. Apparently I mean, not. Obviously they don't. <laughs> they, they must not. Yeah, yeah which don't, makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I think we all sort of link those two things the same way. We link, well, if you get a good quarterback in, then you're going to get good receivers. I think that that sort of has happened. Uh, but the offensive line running back link has not. Do they look, Notre Dame turns out, what a running back? Well, because theoretic's he, like a, a hidden gem NFL running back that you know no one thinks of theoretic really in in high school recruiting. Yeah. Right now. It's like, well, they had theoretic, and I like that guy. I don't there think should be. Should, I mean, there should be. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, there should be. Like, shouldn't your offensive line coach help you recruit running backs? I mean, shouldn't there be a cross pollination of recruiting there? I agree. I, <laughs> yeah, it just it, it's a it's a question that I don't think any of us have a good answer for, frankly. But it's a good question. Chino1047, do they feed you in the press box? And if so, who has the best food? They do feed us in the press box. Um, we die. Yeah. Our day. <laughs> we are there for a long... They feed us more than once That's in the true. press box. South Florida, they fed us like six times. Yeah. So it's a, uh, usually it's a collection of hot dogs and potato salad at Notre Dame before the game. And then uh, after the game, Papa John's, as far as the eye can see. If you get up there in time, I guess. Yeah, um, and by the end, by, by, you know, I mean, we're talking about how many hours? I mean, we're there 12 to 8, 10. If the game starts at, if it's a 3.30 game, I think we usually get there around yeah, 12, so then, 12.30. Yeah, yeah, so about 9 to 10 hours. Yeah. yeah. You can, two meals. Yeah, and you can consume a lot of chocolate chip cookies <laughs> in 9 to 10 hours. <laughs> now, just before we get into who feeds us the best, because that is the most important aspect yeah. of this entire podcast, I will say Notre Dame upped its game at halftime last year. They did not just roll out the hot dogs. Remember, there was a theme to every opponent. Oh, right, yeah. There was the barbecue for Wake Forest and such. There was, they tried there. They did. They had, they, they had yeah. a theme for every opponent. They did? Yeah, they did. They had. <laughs> it was, um, you guys didn't go to the right line, I guess. Right, there was so, always something so good out there. best places to eat? Uh, best food, I would, I would, two candidates for me, um, Baltimore. Is really good because we're at Raven State. Pretty much any NFL that's, stadium. Yeah, that's exactly that's sort of one group. And the, but I think a, a surprising upset candidate for best food is Air Force. I br- they brought in like Carabas, <laughs> nice. which I thought was quite good. I now think, I didn't have I a great remember. appetite for that game. I that, remember that. that for, I remember. So for some reason I don't. I don't. I, I can't quite place <laughs> it. it but the, it was the but I do remember the food. Once I had an appetite around the end of the third quarter, it was good. <laughs> We stayed in Denver, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In Denver, Everybody so blamed the altitude said, on the yeah. feeling we had going I totally in. agree with that. Uh, the NFL stadiums. Oh, Heinz Field was... P- yeah, Pittsburgh's great. Car- Baltimore was great. AT&T Stadium. The yeah. greatest of all time, of course. Dallas Cowboys. As Pete said when he came back with a, with a cookie, I think there's a grandmother in the back making these. <laughs> <laughs> they were so good. That was really good. I will throw in uh, La- uh, Texas a couple years ago. It was very good. Oh, yeah, guacamole. Yep. Yeah, that was that was excellent. Um, so better than other thing. All right, Sorry. and this is a question from ND Recruiting One. Coming from Wisconsin, what is more likely, Graham Mertz or Julius Davis flipping to Notre Dame? Uh, if you're not following recruiting, both are Wisconsin commitments today. Graham Mertz, a quarterback; Julius Davis, a running back. Frankly, uh, I like Notre Dame or I like Wisconsin's evaluations by and large at both those positions fairly consistently, especially running backs. I would say. I mean, Graham Mertz, probably, yeah, the my, more likely my, to flip. My vote would definitely be Graham Mertz. Because, you know, we are talking about why can't Notre Dame get a link between running back recruiting and offensive line recruiting? They definitely have that link happening at Wisconsin, where running backs are like, <laughs> well, of course, you have these farm-bred offensive linemen here all the time. And I'll just run for 1,500 yards, no problem. But I, 
everything I've heard about Graham Mertz and Notre Dame's position there makes me think that Graham Mertz just really wants to play at Notre Dame. That's like a dream for him mm-hmm. um, at the next level. And I give the guy credit if he does that flip because quarterback is a position with Drew Pine in 2020 and Phil Jerkovic in a couple weeks. It's not a position where there's a lot of just obvious playing time available. Yeah, those three guys aren't going to stay on the roster together. No. <laughs> no that, link, that link, frustratingly, not to pile on here, works at Stanford, clearly, too. Yeah. I mean, they keep having the runner, national runner-up for the Heisman at running back. They can't do better. They can't, they can't get the number one, unfortunately. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's puzzling. That was the best question we've been asked. Why yeah. can't Notre Dame link their running back to offensive line success? Question from Jason Detweiler. I recently saw a Top 25 College Football Coaches article that snubbed Brian Kelly. Is it re- unreasonable to expect Notre Dame did always have one of the top 25 coaches in the country? Well, if you took the poll, it, I mean, that poll a couple of years ago would have been different. It yeah. changes based upon the yeah, last year I think or two. CBS did a poll, and then Stu Mandel did a poll. Uh, and I think with – I listened to Mandel had a podcast with Bruce Feldman, and Feldman – basically said, like, why didn't you have Brian Kelly on there? Um, He's like, yeah, he was sort of like right, kind of a 26-27. Tell Uh, him why. I mean, we could, the the stat that I pulled out a couple weeks ago is why. Yeah, he's 1-12 in in his last 13 against the coaches on this list. Yeah, not that he hasn't. Beating those coaches just once. It's no. the last time the, la- the last time they played. coached against the other thirteen in the top thirty, and it was Mark D'Antonio that he beat. Correct. Who was number sixteen? And boy, he would have been a lot higher two years ago. Yeah, that yeah. you know that, that yeah that to me that's I just so it's, he's it's worse, weird. Is D'Antonio a worse coach now than he was? The criteria for is strange to me though because like I realize Lincoln Riley jumped in and went to the playoffs, but yes. one year puts yeah, you yeah. at number fifteen ahead of Mark D'Antonio and Mark Richt. Well, that was like Mandel's poll. He didn't have Lincoln Riley on there at all. Um, I wouldn't think after one year you would. Yeah, it's not I mean, like he was handed the you know, so he had, jalopy and turned it into a... For the sake of like Notre Dame's schedule, Mandel had Shaw at 8, um, Harbaugh at 13, Neil Matalolo at 17, and Fitzgerald, Pat Fitzgerald at number 18. Um, I don't... Yeah, so Neil Matalolo was not yeah. on the list that I referred yeah. to. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean there's a... And Everyone can come up with their own list. And Clay Helton was not in the top 30 on the list that I referred to. So it's like, you know, is Brian Kelly a top 25 coach? Probably, but he's probably in the 20, yeah, 20 to 25 range, yeah. right? I mean, Scott... Well, you got to count two years ago. It's part of it. Yeah. Scott Frost is on the list I was referring to. Yeah. And he's, you know, I mean... He, he probably would be a top 25 well, coach, Well, yeah, right? but yeah. but let's see him coach. And you make a, that's a good point about Frost because Fuente is 26, and I feel like Fuente has had a few good years at the Power 5 level, and he had a really good it's, resume to get there. So Frost has basically one yeah. great year. It's Yeah, and I think... Because if Frost was 10-2 and two last year, he wouldn't be on this it's, list. Of course, of course, anything like this is so subjective. I mean, Kyle Whittingham's 25th. I mean, who does more with... For a long time. Yeah, who, yeah. Do, who yeah, for a long time on a very, very consistent basis, Utah is always right there and a dangerous opponent. How'd you like Notre Dame to play Utah in November in Utah? Surprised <laughs> they're not. Yeah. I mean, it did be. That was one of Kelly's better wins against Kyle Whittingham, Utah at, at Notre Dame. You know, it's like, it's it's hard to pound the table. You just illustrated why he might be number 27, yeah, by the way. That's, that's a good bad, point. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. I don't. But it's like compared I don't know to that, that wasn't one of it. One of his I'm, twelve best wins for sure. Brian Kelly versus Mike Leach or Rocky Long or Gus Melzahn or Dan Mullen. Like I think that the difference between who's number sixteen and who's number twenty-seven is pretty minimal. Agreed. What I think a, a better question here was like, shouldn't Notre Dame have more like a coach that is viewed as top ten nationally at all times? Um, Ideally, yes, but right now, yeah, I mean, not, you can't well, make that argument. Yeah, today. Then you can, I mean, you'd be changing coaches every as soon as somebody <laughs> had a I mean, bad year. I mean, that, that, the the bottom line is, in eight seasons, should Brian Kelly only have three double digit winning yeah, seasons? No. no, it should be better than that in Notre Dame. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the reason the season is so interesting. C- CMU Penns fan, if you had to rank this year's road game trips, you have to make. How would you rank them from most looking forward to all the way to boy, is this going to suck? <laughs> Um, one, Navy and San Diego. Concur. Um, 
two, Virginia Tech, three, Los Angeles, USC, four, Northwestern, five, Syracuse, Yankee Stadium, and six, Wake Forest, which is in uh, Winston-Salem. Yes, it is. Uh, Navy won, and it's not even close. It's been that way for four and a half years, five years since it was announced. Uh, Virginia Tech is a bucket list stadium to visit for any college football fan. I assume that game will be at night and very loud. When you have L.A. third on a list, that's a good season. Yep. Um, the mind's a little different from Pete here. I'll explain why. Syracuse, because I said I have a going to have a stake at Keens. Um, I'm looking forward to that trip. I'd like to thank the Notre Dame administration for moving the home game out of November. Tim and I are the only two that feel that way. Uh, <laughs> Wake Forest is ahead of Northwestern for me because I'll be driving into Chicago the day of the game and driving back that night, and that is not... That's a great. negative, you're saying. That's a massive negative for okay. me, yes. Well, you know, the top three, I think, are, I mean, San Diego, great location. Virginia Tech, I've been talking about for years, about, yeah. you know, having the opportunity to go there for a night game. L.A., it's always where fun. we stay, yeah. it's always great. Um, you know, I, you know, Northwestern, Syracuse, Wake, you can probably put them in any. It's always it's always great to go to North Carolina. Of course, there'll be a hurricane that weekend. There's no doubt about it. Although, that's still, what, that's late no, late September, yeah, I think we're, Hurricanes we're, we're currently beating yeah, the North Carolina, would. NC State weekends, Clemson type <laughs> weekends there. So it's, I mean, it's <laughs> all of them. Are, it's amazing. <laughs> Wake, uh, Wake Forest is upgraded by the easy to get there f- from here, where it's actually direct flight from South Bend into North Carolina now. Um, so, but yeah, San Diego, the vent, the city, Virginia Tech, the venue. Those are those are one and one A for me. The playoff game at stake for LA, also. So yeah, throw a plug in there for the positive. Yeah, that's fine too. Northwestern is also the game where that's another uh, like a, that game right now. In yeah, terms I mean, of the let's game, see, let's see what kind thing. of year. Well, it doesn't really matter what kind of no. year Northwestern's having. That yeah, well, we'll do. There'll be plenty. <laughs> it's a different of time question. For, there'll be plenty of time for trepidation regarding that game. Uh, <laughs> Old Mullen, how much of an impact should recruiting success have on whether a coach is retained? Follow up: What will happen if Notre Dame goes eight and five this year? We talked about this right before the segment. It's the recruiting impact when it's very low or very high is obvious. It's it's more of a gray area where, like, the, the tiebreaker for Tyron Willingham was he had two offensive linemen brought in in three years. It wasn't like, hmm, what's, what direction is this going? Now, Charlie Weiss had good recruiting going when he was fired, so that did not bring him over the top, if you want to look at it that way. He, he, was, he had three really good years in a row, of, and he had just brought in what has proven to be Brian Kelly's best class in terms of top heaviness, the Manti Teo freshman class. Well, I think you could argue that maybe it did make sure that he was not fired before, before. 2009. I think that if his recruiting was like Willingham's, he would not have had a fifth year. Yeah, because yeah, that's a good point, because his fourth year wasn't great yeah, but bounce I mean, back. What, no, what? It, was, it was quite bad. The third year wasn't was not great. Well, the third bad. year was always going to be you bad. You can say a lot of things about Weiss, bad, but, but he, he worked his ass off yeah. in recruiting. No question. He didn't necessarily... Directed in the right way, but you know he didn't necessarily right, right. tend to his roster for balance the way he needed to. But he he worked really really hard at it. Tyrone did not. There's a there's a related follow up that's kind of difficult because uh, I think semantics go into this. What will happen on this topic if Notre Dame is eight and five this year? People will be upset. Yes, that's what will happen. And I think the type of eight and five if there's a bad. If there's a bad, uh, especially if it's in November. If it's right? November, end of October. November. How else would you get to eight and five? Because if 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 you're saying, you could lose, I mean, you could lose to, to what to Vanderbilt. No, but you could lose to Stanford, Michigan, and Virginia Tech. That'd be terrible too. But you could lose to them all, right? If you lost every game, oh, yeah, of consequence uh, that'd be bad. But uh, you could lose those yes. games though. It would be quite bad. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think they're barring a rash of injuries on defense. I think their defense is too good to... I don't think that will happen. I'm yeah. saying those teams, that three of their six peers are in the first half, but I think people will remember if you have another bad November. Yeah, and this goes back to I Brian don't... Kelly top 25. Don't lose four and five games on a yeah. regular basis and you'll be in that top 25. I don't I don't think that a collapse would be viewed any better or worse than losing to Michigan and Stanford. Because there's no... And hope. Virginia Tech and Florida State. And USC. If you lost every marquee game of consequence, there's no hope along the way either. Right. Yeah. That that would that would get into the my what are we doing here uh, aspect. If you can't beat a so good fi- team, so five losses is five, five losses. losses is just five losses is five losses. Yeah. Yeah. It just there's there's no way to get to especially with this. This is actually I think 
for my money, at least this is a good Notre, this is a good schedule, like a schedule Notre Dame can work with um, to get the five losses in the regular season. Okay, so that's we'll a good tie into our next question, which is from Autone. True or false, if Notre Dame finishes 11-1 with a close loss to Michigan, Notre Dame is more likely than not to make the playoffs? Yeah, 11-1 with a close loss in the opener. Yes, true. True. Yeah, sure, and true. that's why I think people get too caught up in, you know, the 12 game. You And you talked to Swarbrick about that, yeah. 12 games as opposed to 13. That wouldn't have been, you know, with the Georgia loss last year, Notre Dame clearly would have been in the playoffs had they been able to have success in Yes. In oh, yeah, they were poised to be. Well, they were, they were, they were third. third, yeah. They I mean, were third so, when they right. showed up in Miami. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's like, that's, you know, I, I don't like the term must win. It's too easy to use and it doesn't really mean anything because like it's a must win or what like until you get the or what like it's just the fan base must win of last year's Georgia where right but they don't actually Notre Dame to Tim's credit when he said they are going to be what it would be four and one or five and one for the USC game after losing to Georgia they at least had some teams to get the fans excited Notre Dame has nothing until Stanford if they lose the yeah, game, that's a, the problem. It's a must win if, if they want to if you, if you go yeah, if you want to go undefeated, it's also a must win if you want the month of September to be exciting at, at Notre Dame. Those are those are the two things where yes, absolutely is a must win or else A or else B. And it's hard to go if they lose to Michigan in the close game and both teams look great, just like the Georgia game, or both both teams look formidable just like the Georgia game, it's just hard to run this whole thing. With 11 straight wins. You would figure they would lose another game. Yeah, I just think that if you lose it. Michigan, you're going to lose again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the, the problem with losing to Michigan is that you weren't good enough to beat Michigan. Right. That means you're probably not going to be good enough to beat lights. 11 exactly. other teams. Exactly. Wash ND, which player is more important, in other words, which can they not afford to lose to have success this season? Center, Sam Mustafer or linebacker, Tavon Coney? They were my two and three. So I guess Coney, because he was my two. Tillery was my number one, because I think it would break down the defense. A nose tackle that allows your, I my my Tillery idea is that having Tillery allows the players around him that are younger and up and coming to play the right role. Where if you have Heinish or Tagovailoa Mosa starting and moving up in that role, that's not a championship contending team. So that's why Tillery's trickle down effect is one for me. Coney's right there because he's their best player, and then Mustafer's at the most important position where they don't have a backup because. Rule keeps getting hurt and hasn't played. You don't know he'll be a good backup just because they like yeah. him. It's. I think this is. I think a lot of people look at this question, but I go, well, obviously it's Tavon Coney. Didn't didn't you watch the uh, the Citrus Bowl? I would say it's way closer than that between these two. Uh, and I think also, if you look at Notre Dame's leadership group this year, to me it's it's Sam Mustafer, and I don't want to like denigrate Drew Tranquil or Alex Bards or Tyler Newsom. But I do think Sam Mustafer is as close to a Quentin Nelson, Mike McGlinchey as there is in that group. I mean, I think Tranquil is a, good, is a, good, right is a good leader. Yeah. But I think in terms of a guy who's going to make sure that Notre Dame's offensive line has its crap together at all times, that, and that is really, really yeah. important this year, I think Sam Mustafer delivers I think that. that's a kind of a DNA thing, you know, yeah. with, with offensive linemen slash Harry Heastan, coach <laughs> offensive linemen, whether that will continue with Jeff Quinn or not, I don't know. You know, at least with Ruland, it's a guy that they... They like him. They, they, they like him, and if he could stay healthy, I mean, I certainly think he would be functional at, at that position. John Jones, Jonathan Jones would be functional, I guess, but Coney's a superstar now. I mean, he is potentially a superstar here in this upcoming season. So do you, I, do I you disagree with the Jerry Tillery idea notion? I do from the standpoint that I think I think MTA and MTA slash Jason Adamalola could probably give you some pretty quality and consistent production. My thought is they can do that with Tillery, too. And you could have a defensive line where you finally have... Well, true, and then Adam Alola probably doesn't always play near, nearly as much, which think, is he's yeah. a true freshman, so that's probably good. But Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to get... And this is probably a good way to get into insane Indy Tucson, which of the incoming defensive freshmen do you think could make a surprise impact other than the ones expected to be in the two deep? I think Jason Adam Alola... I think it's safe to say he'll be better than Heinish or Tongavailoa Mosa were last year. If that's the case, and you have him helping at least one of those guys, yeah. prob- almost certainly MTA, 
It helps um, them all, though. I mean, it's just having all yeah. that bodies in there. There's is... no reason MTA can't take some snaps right. from Heinish as well. Uh, if those are your three backups at those positions um, behind Bonner and Tillery, that's a that's a pretty good group. Um, and you think I, they'll cross over like that at three technique and nose tackle? I'm just saying MTA could do it. Um, you know, could he help at multiple positions? I think probably so. Um, you know, I, I don't think Adam Alola can do it, nor do I think Heinish can do it. Not that Heinish couldn't learn it. I just think he's built to be a nose. I think he's built. Um, yeah, I, to, I, you know. I agree with that. Adam Alola might. There's some flexibility there, I think, but not not Heinish. No. Um, so it's like if those are your three first guys off the bench, then that's what I'm like with yeah, Tillery and Bonner. That's a that's yeah. a nice five man group to me. Well, it's. I mean, we all want to see Tillery, who should be at his peak, playing his best position in his final year of eligibility, playing to you know for a shot to have a spot in the NFL. You know, let's hope it. <laughs> let's hope it doesn't come down to that because it, it's potentially a really exciting year for him. Uh, last question from yeah, that's a that was sort of bridging into the last question. Other defensive freshmen you think can make an impact? We we talked about Jason Adamalolas in the context of that last question. We all assume Derek Allen and Houston Griffith will, or we assume Houston Griffith will, and I believe Derek Allen will make an impact. Um, as the season yeah. progresses, yeah. you know, as the season goes along. Yeah, I, re- I really wasn't looking at guys that were here in the spring. I looked right, at incoming right. defensive for, you know, I looked at those guys as well. Well, I mean, everybody likes Shane Simon, but he there's a, there's a glut of players right now at Rover. He'll have to, it's not like he's going to walk in and take over the number two job. He's got Osu Kormo, who everybody likes. He's got a starting senior in Bilal. Right. That's right. He yeah, no, that, right? That, He'll yeah. play too because yeah. a special team. He's a killer made. I think I'm most interested. If you're looking for, like, the deep cut here, um, what happens with the four corners who come totally in? Agree. Totally yeah. agree. Because I just, if you said, I mean, you just pulled one of those names from a hat and said, this is going to be the best guy in this class and he's going to help Notre Dame this year, I could not argue for or against any of them. Um, like, none of that would surprise me. I think maybe the most likely is none of them really do anything this year. But over the course of their career, who's going to be the best of those four? I, I absolutely have no idea. I think they all have different assets that could uh, that could help Notre Dame. The corners you put them in order, one through four. The corners. Well, the corners. The part of the corners interesting is who starts out and sticks at a boundary corner because that's an open spot. Look, Dante Vaughn doesn't fit there. Right, but. at field corner. They moved Dante Vaughn because they did not like how he fit at boundary corner. Now he has to move back to boundary corner because they lost Nick Watkins. And they explained it about Vaughn in kind of an understanding of football situation, which going into your junior year, that's not a good thing. That the, the field is that much more obvious to you than the boundary. I, mm-hmm. That means you're missing some of the technicalities of the game. We, the Dante Vaughn fall from grace if it's not just athletic injuries taking a toll and making him look worse. He was fine as a true freshman out there when they threw him in, right? I mean, he came out and played He was, fine. but they were in transition with coordinator, and they're just looking for a guy to make but plays. But he didn't and look I think, lost. He no, was... but I think, he, I think his length and just his flat ability to make plays on the football, that didn't mean that he knew. Right. I, I know what you're saying. He yeah. didn't look lost. He was around the football, and he made plays. Um but then you bring a guy like Elko in, and Elko didn't have any intention of playing him. True. So that, so that, tell, so that tells you that he didn't have a real good grasp of, of what they were trying to run out there. So if he can be beaten out on the boundary, then it's whoever goes to boundary, which we talked to Todd Light in the spring. This was early spring, but he, the t- he's a great interview <laughs> yes. for these things. He actually offered that Boykin, and, um, that Boykin would start on the boundary, Bracey would start to the field, and Wilkins would start at both. Yeah, in other words, DJ, DJ Brown to the boundary. To the boundary. So well. one of those a, guys can like be a, second string if you beat out Dante Vaughn, who's been hurt a lot. And I, and the most, the, the just the pure most talented guy there is Boykin. Yes. Okay. Now is is he? Will he be more coachable than Wilkins? And right. You know, I I, I know people don't like to keep hearing that, but that that's an ever-present thought in the minds of everybody around Notre Dame. Yeah, and I, I talked to his defensive coordinator, Noah Boykin's defensive coordinator, for about 45 minutes on a bunch of things, and that was one of them. And look, Noah Boykin has supreme confidence, whether it is justified or not, in his own ability, where he came up to the varsity as a freshman and basically said to the coaches, like, why aren't you putting me on their best receiver? Like, why, why am I even here? What am I doing here? <laughs> One of the other corners on that team is starting at Oklahoma. 
who was older than Noah Boykin. So it's not like he hasn't played with talented guys. He thinks he is the best guy on the field at all times. That's great if you channel it the right way. Um, Yeah. It's going to be... I mean, that's a hard transition to this level of... Yeah, I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm so interested to see how he slots into too. the roster and the culture of the program because um, Notre Dame just doesn't sign a lot of guys who th- just thinks like, screw it, I'm the best guy out there. If if you're not going to play me on the guy, why why am I even here? Why do I need to show and, up to practice? And thus my comparison to Robert Blanton, yeah. who was very similar to that. I love Tariq Bracey. I think long term he's going to be very good. I don't think physically he's going to be anywhere near where he needs to be this fall. Um to me, okay, these are the guys that I wrote. Well, I wrote down Derek Allen, Shane Simon, but those are guys that could slot second team. Right. The right. two that I wrote down were Noah Boykin and, and Joe Wilkins. I love Joe Wilkins' size. And light seems like Wilkins' um, approach to the offseason and to coming in being best prepared. He, he said that Wilkins is the guy that's yeah. constantly contacting him, saying, what can I do? Yeah. What can I learn? That's and important. That, that is important when you're starting out. Yeah. Or, or, or the we, whole time. Are, are, we, are we missing anybody else? I mean, Jamie and... Franklin last year he would have maybe this yeah I don't know how he's going to move ahead of Bonner and, yeah. and Heinish unless there's an injury there uh, and that's a situation to me at least like is he going to be better than <coughs> fourth year senior Micah Du Treadway he should not be it's it's bad news if he is right, right. Um, oh maybe it's good news for Jamie Franklin yeah. if he is but that he would have to be so clearly better than a guy who's been in a college football program for four years uh, to make. Playing him even makes sense. I feel like Dude Treadway can be functional this year, don't you? If he just stays healthy, I do. He's just... a bit. He's a man. I, I go back to. <laughs> I gave him a pretty much a scathing review coming out of high school. But the one thing I said was, "This is a big. This is a long, big, athletic dude. He has no idea what he's doing out there, <laughs> and he may never know what he's doing out there on the collegiate level." But you're starting to see some of that, and now he's now he's really big. I I agree, I agree with you. You know how many snaps are we talking about? 10, 12? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't going right. on as 10. Well, right. that, yeah. Less than that. That'd and be great. About, like over the course of the season, you're talking about a five-snap player. Um, who's, so one series. But and, and really, that's an average of five snaps where half of his total snaps are going to come against Ball State. Yeah, true. Um, true. So you're just uh, really in, in snaps of consequence. You're probably talking about 15 snaps all year. Yeah. It's, it's not a lot. So it's... You know, I don't I want really... more than 15 all year, I think, yeah. would be the way to say it. Oh, sure. no, no, maybe not. Of consequence, right. where it's a major, major yeah. part of the game. Yeah, that's, that's good. All right, so one, real quickly, who's the, one, who's the guy on offense that fits this the guy that The guy that could contribute this year that is off the chart a little bit. Probably Lawrence Keyes, I guess. Um, I don't really know who else would qualify. I think Lindsey and Austin are two... Uh, renowned. <laughs> yeah, they're too pick. renowned. It's like, I really like this yeah, Kyle yeah, Rudolph you can't guy. Do that because uh, they, they expect both of them to play. I think the big concern with Lawrence Keyes is will he have the upper body strength yes. to compete at, 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 at this level as a freshman? Because lower body, I mean, speed and, just, you know, I mean, maneuverability and all that, he's got it. But can he take the, the pounding as a, as a freshman who isn't quite gadget player in. to me. Right. That's right. what he that's what he can be this year. Flemister is too obvious now. Flemister's but that's mine. That has no. been, that was mine before we were thinking Notre Dame wouldn't have their whole running back roster. And we that can't was... conclude a podcast without me just saying Jafar Armstrong. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but, I, but we haven't mentioned him yet. So LZ I... Mac. Okay. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there's um it you know it it's interesting. I was doing a story on Derek Allen in his off-season training, and he works with a guy who played at Valdosta State in the CFL uh, named Cedric Dickerson, and he said, like, what these freshmen don't get is that really by the end of that first week, maybe halfway through that first week, the coaches have already decided whether you can play or not. So the first week? The first yeah. week of training camp, they're like, this guy can help us this year. We'll see you next year. Um, and so it's I think for these freshmen coming in, there's – these potential contributors, Brian Kelly might not tell us by the end of that first week, but the coaches will know. Lawrence Keys, yes or no. Um, well, think about Joe Dar- Wilkins, yes or no. Think about Darnell Yule. Exactly. Time. Yeah. I mean, so, that first day at Culver, he yeah. was done. Yes or no. It's <laughs> the first drill. <laughs> you know, it's a, that stuff. That stuff happens a lot quicker than I think people think. Actually, Audrey Denson did say that they knew Josh Adams was going to help them the first practice of Culver of his first. His first ever practice. Yeah. So it's, that's... Having been in coaching on a lower level, it's, that's absolutely true. You, your first impression, you can't change your first impression. It mm-hmm. is what it is, good or bad. 
yeah. So it will be it will be fascinating to see that training camp. Thankfully, still two months away. Um, so we will be back, Irish Illustrated Insider, probably in the next couple of weeks. Talk a little bit more about the schedule. Get into Vanderbilt. Get into the rest of September as well. Um, so until then, Pete Sampson, Tim Priester, Tim O'Malley. Thanks for listening. Ah.